And that brings us now to the death of Herod. So let's just go ahead and read these final five verses. They are dramatic, to say the least. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. And the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Since chapter 8, it has been a relatively quiet period in the life of the church. Uh, We had seen persecution early on where the apostles had uh, been arrested and dragged before the Sanhedrin and ordered not to speak anymore in Christ's name. You'll recall that. Uh, But over and over again, the Lord had delivered them. And furthermore, the Sanhedrin, the members of the Jewish ruling council, were rather nervous about overplaying their hand. They were nervous about taking any action against the apostles because the apostles seemed to be so popular among the people because of the great works that they were doing. Uh, The healing ministry, for example, that Peter and John had exercised and healing the man at the temple gate called Beautiful. And so there had been some persecution early on, but then it had sort of died out. Remember that it was Gamaliel who had suggested to them that if this thing was from God, that the only thing they would be doing by persecuting the apostles would be fighting against God. So his wise counsel was, let's just stand back for a moment. Let's just see what happens here. If this thing is not from God, it will wither and die. And if it is from God, there's nothing that we can do to stop it. And so that seems to have been the attitude from Acts chapter 8 right up to Acts chapter 12, a period of relative peace and tranquility where the church seems to be expanding. But now we get to Acts chapter 12, and we see that there is another period of persecution. I think this is important. Why? Well, because the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to his young friend Timothy, said, but mark this, there will come times of difficulties. In the last days, he said, there will come times of difficulty. Some translations put it, there will come seasons of difficulty. And that just reminds us that persecution and opposition to the gospel is not always going to be an everyday occurrence. There are going to be times when there is relative peace and prosperity in the life of the church. But then there will be those moments, those seasons, when we can expect persecution and difficulty and even suffering for the sake of the gospel. Well, there had been a period or a season of tranquility. Now there's going to be a period or a season of persecution. And we're told that it takes place during the reign of King Herod. Chapter 12 begins, About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now tradition holds that every one of the apostles was martyred. This was not the first martyr. Who was the first martyr in the life of the church? Stephen. But Stephen was not an apostle. Remember, they were reluctant to lay their hands on the apostles. They weren't reluctant to lay their hands on other Christians. But the apostles were leaders. They had an authority that the people were somewhat reluctant to touch. But now, they are reaching into the apostolic band itself, and they put James 
to death. They behead him. And as I said, tradition holds that every one of the apostles, with the exception of one, was martyred. And the one that wasn't martyred was who? It was John. John apparently died in exile on the Isle of Patmos. So it's interesting to note that the first apostle to die was James. The last apostle to die was John. And these two men were brothers. They were James and John. They were the sons of Zebedee. So the sons of Zebedee were the first and the last of the apostles to die. Well, who was King Herod? The reason I ask that question is we hear a lot about Herod in the Bible, but you have to ask yourself the question, which Herod? Because there were quite a few of them. That title, Herod, was a proper name, but it was also um, a dynastic title. There was one original Caesar, Julius Caesar. But everyone who came after Julius Caesar styled themselves as a Caesar. They took that proper name as a title, and the same thing was true for the Herodians. Uh, there were those who titled themselves as Herods. They were directly related to the original Herod, but they were using that name as a title as much as anything else. So who was the Herod that we're talking about? Well, let's just sort of go back and take a look at all of the Herods for a moment, because it's helpful. And they all appear in the scriptures, and we need to know which one we're really talking about. The most famous one, of course, was Herod the Great. Herod the Great um, is renowned in history. I say renowned. He was renowned as a great diplomat. Uh, he worked for the Roman Empire. He ruled over a huge tract of land in ancient Palestine. He was a builder of great things. In fact, those of you who are going with me to the Holy Land, one of the things that you're going to see is the great harbor at Caesarea Maritima. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world, a fantastic harbor, unlike anything that was existing in the ancient world. One of the other ancient wonders of the world was the great temple in Jerusalem. Uh, they said it was uh, a building that if you hadn't seen the temple of Herod, you had not seen a great building. And that was built by Herod. Herod built all of these great fortresses, all of these great monuments, many of them as monuments to himself. He built the fortress at Masada. Those of you who've been to the Holy Land or to Palestine, you've been to Masada. Uh, he built a great palace there as well. He was a great builder, but he was a very vicious and cruel leader. Uh, he managed to keep peace in Palestine in the early part of the first century, or in the end of the, uh, the period that existed before the first century, what we call the first century. Uh, but he did so um, by acts of great cruelty and by being very hard on the people of that province. Uh, this Herod is known to us primarily because he is the one uh, who was alive at the time that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And when the Magi came from the east looking for the new king of the Jews, it was this Herod who was filled with anxiety. Uh, he was a king, but he was a vassal king. That is to say, he served at the pleasure of the Roman Empire. And so long as he could keep peace in Palestine for the Romans, he would maintain his position. But he knew very well that if he did not maintain the peace, if somebody else would appear on the scene who could do the job better than him, the Romans would dispose of him just like a used Kleenex. And so any kind of word about a new king arriving on the scene filled him with great anxiety. And he was the one who ultimately put all of those innocents in Bethlehem to death. Every male child under the age of two to ensure that there would be no pretender to the throne 
during his reign. That's the kind of person that he was. He was notorious as a womanizer. He had 10 marriages and 15 children over the course of those 10 marriages. And as I said, he reigned from 34 to 4 BC. Everybody lived in fear of King Herod. He had at least two of his sons and one of his wives put to death because he thought that they were conspiring against him. A very cruel man. But he died uh, shortly after the Lord was born. Uh, You'll recall that when that persecution erupted in Bethlehem, uh, Mary and Joseph were told in a dream to flee Judea. And where did they go? They fled to Egypt, the flight into Egypt. And they were about to come back when they heard of the death of Herod the Great. But then when they heard that his son had ascended to the throne, they decided not to go back to Bethlehem or to Jerusalem. Well, who was his son? Well, his son was Herod Archelaus. When Herod the Great died, his kingdom was divided into four parts. And these four parts were each ruled by what was known as a tetrarch. And that means a ruler of one-fourth. So one of his sons, Herod Archelaus, took over and reigned over that portion of Palestine where Mary and Joseph would have gone back to. And so we're told in Matthew chapter 2, verse 22, that they decided not to go back because they found out that Herod Archelaus was then on the throne. Another one of Herod's son was Herod Philip, the Tetrarch of Galilee. Uh, We encounter him in Luke chapter 3. He is simply mentioned. Uh, We don't know a whole lot about him, um, but he is the one who established Caesarea Philippi. That was the city where Jesus, you'll recall, went with his disciples, and he asked them that question, Who do men say that I am? And everybody had an answer, you are Elijah, you're one of the prophets, you're John the Baptist. And Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And it was Peter who said, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus said, that's right, and on this rock I will build my church. Well, that took place at Caesarea Philippi. That town of Caesarea Philippi had been built by this man, Philip the Tetrarch. We don't know too much about him. He's not mentioned much in the scripture other than this one passage from Luke chapter 3. There's still another Herod, and that is Herod Antipas. Uh, He is likewise a son of Herod the Great, and he reigned in Galilee. Uh, You know that ancient Palestine in the first century was divided into basically three sections. There was Judea to the south, in and around Jerusalem. There was that area just north of Judea, which was known as Samaria. And then the northern part of Israel was Galilee. And that is where this man, Herod Antipas, reigned from about 6 A.D. to 39 A.D. He reigned in Galilee until he was banished by the Romans to Gaul. Uh, He appears in the scriptures in Matthew chapter 14 and Luke chapter 23, and he is significant primarily because he was the man who was responsible for the death of John the Baptist. All right? He was the man that was living with his brother's wife. And John the Baptist, of course, preached against that, and Herod didn't like that, and so his wife eventually had what? Well, she conspired to have John the Baptist beheaded. So he's the one who's responsible for the death of John the Baptist. He is also the one who we're told in Luke chapter 23, Jesus stood trial before in Jerusalem. Recall that when Jesus was arrested in Jerusalem in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was taken first and foremost to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, and then he stood trial before Annas, the high priest as well. And then we're told he was taken to the 
palace of the Roman procurator, Pontius Pilate. Pilate didn't know what to do with him. He didn't know a whole lot about Jewish law, and so he sent him off to who? To King Herod. And that's the Herod right there, Herod Antipas. But there was another Herod, still another Herod, and that's Herod Agrippa I. He is the grandson of Herod the Great. Everybody we've been talking about up to this point is a son of Herod the Great. This is a grandson. Now, Herod Agrippa I's father was a son of Herod the Great. And his name was Aristobulus. He had been sent off to Rome to train and to be educated. And he came back and he was hailed, very attractive, well-educated, well-bred man. And he came back and um, he was so popular among the people that his grandfather, or I should say his father, Herod the Great, Aristobulus' father, became jealous. And I mentioned that Herod the Great had at least two of his sons put to death and one of his wives. This was one of the sons. Aristobulus was put to death. And so all of his power and all of his inheritance went to his son, Herod the Great's grandson, King Agrippa. He's king of Judea, this area to the south, between 41 and 44 A.D. When today's text mentions Herod the king laying violent hands on the church and killing James and imprisoning Peter, this is the Herod that we're talking about. All right, Herod Agrippa I, the son of Aristobulus and his second wife, Mariamne. There is still another Herod, <laughs> and that is Herod Agrippa II. He is the great-grandson we're going to encounter him later on in the book of Acts, about 14 chapters later, in chapters 25 and 26. It is that Herod that the Apostle Paul will stand trial before after he is arrested in Jerusalem. So there's lots of these Herods, and you may say, I don't really care, um, and that may be the case. But because this is history and the Christian faith is an historical faith, I think it's important that we realize that these events are really grounded in events that actually took place. They're, they are grounded in real history and time. This is not fairy tale. This is not made up. Um, some years ago, we were on a trip to the Holy Land, and um, we were having uh, dessert in the King David Hotel one night. And we're sitting in the lobby, and uh, you know, you get to talking with people. You know, this is your first trip to the Holy Land. What do you think? What, is the, what has been the thing that surprised you the most? What has impressed you the most? And there was one couple that had brought their teenage daughter along. She was on spring break, and they brought her to the Holy Land. And I can tell you, that was not where she wanted to be for her spring break. And uh, we're sitting there, and uh, the whole way along the trip, she had been very frustrated, and she didn't really care for anything. But you begin to see her warm up as the trip progressed. And uh, we're sitting there one night in the King David Hotel, and somebody asked her, they said, well, what do you think of all this? And she said this. She said, this really happened. And one of my colleagues said, well, of course it happened. As though he was incredulous. What do you mean it, it happened? She said, well, you know, I've read these stories all my life. She said, but I sort of thought it was like Santa Claus. But being there on the ground seeing these sights and realizing this was not just a story, this was not just a fairy tale. These things really happened in real time, in real space, made all the difference for her. 
And so that's why we go through this whole catalog of Herods. Just to remind you that these are real people, these are real events, and Luke is a very accurate historian, as we shall see. So we're dealing here with Herod Agrippa I. He is a powerful man. He is ruling over the entire kingdom at this point that his grandfather had reigned over. So he's a very important, very powerful man. As I mentioned earlier, he had been raised in Rome, and he had been very close to the emperor at the time, a notorious man by the name of Caligula, sometimes called, well, we'll, we'll get to that later. <laughs> he was raised in Rome. He was a friend of Caligula. But if you know anything about Roman history, you know that what happened to Caligula? He was assassinated. He only reigned for about four years. Some people said that he went insane. Whatever the reason, he was assassinated. And he was replaced by his uncle, Clodius. Now, what is interesting is that we know that Herod, Antipas, who we're talking about here, this Herod was a friend of Caligula. But he also conspired to have Caligula replaced. He replaced his friend, you see. And he ingratiated himself to Claudius. And as a consequence of helping Claudius to the throne and getting rid of his old friend Caligula, he is rewarded with this entire section of Judea and Samaria. So as I said, he reigns over the kingdom that his grandfather had reigned over. Everybody else reigned over only a quarter of it. He now reigns over the whole thing. He is half Jewish and he is eager to please the Jews. Now, he understands as his grandfather, in many respects, he was probably more like his grandfather in terms of diplomacy than any of the others. And he understood that his job was to keep the peace. He had been rewarded with this great tract of land, but he had to maintain the peace for the Roman Empire. And so he was very careful to come in and ingratiate himself to the Jewish people. And here was the problem. By this point in the history of the church, there's been a breakdown in the relationship between Jews and Christians. Now, the early Jewish Christians didn't see themselves as departing from Judaism at all. If you would have asked Peter or James or John or the any of the others, are you a Jew? They would have said, of course we're Jewish. But because they are embracing Jesus Christ, many of the Jewish religious leaders are declaring them not to be Jews, and they're beginning to expel them from the synagogues. And so when Herod comes in, he is eager to please the Jewish aristocracy, the establishment. And that means that he is going to persecute the Christians. Now, he's tempered in his approach. Up to this point, as I said, nobody has seized one of the apostles. He does. And he puts James to death. But look at what Luke says. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews. In other words, this was a test. I'm going to put my hands on James. I'm going to put him to death. If there's a backlash against it, I'll back off. But if there's not, I'll take the next step. So he's the consummate politician. And so he puts James to death with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, what did he do? He proceeded to arrest Peter also. James becomes the test case. Peter is arrested. Note when Peter is arrested. 
This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. This was the same time of the year in which Jesus had been arrested. And do you remember that Jesus was taken outside the city walls and he was crucified? But it was the feast of the Passover. And they didn't want those bodies hanging on the tree. And so what did they do? They came to Pontius Pilate and they said, go and break the legs of these three prisoners. We don't want them hanging out there. It's going to sort of ruin our Passover, our religious festival. We want those bodies taken down. And that's why they went out and were told, broke the legs of the two thieves. And when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. Well, this is the same thing here. Peter's been arrested. He's probably going to be put to death, but they don't want to do it instantly because it's the Passover and that will ruin the religious festival. And so they throw him into jail, waiting for the Passover to be over. Then they're going to drag him out. So you can see that this king is a real diplomat. He is watching carefully. But there's no doubt about it. He's sort of like a ship tacking at sea. He knows where he's going, but he's got to catch the prevailing wind in order to get there, and that's exactly what he's doing. He's constantly testing the wind. And so he arrests Peter, and he puts Peter into prison. Peter has become public enemy number one. Now, what has Peter done? What's his crime? What law has Peter broken at this point? Anybody want to venture to say? Preaching the word, yes. But he's preaching one thing in particular. He is preaching that Jesus is the Christ. He is preaching that Jesus is Lord. And as you've heard me say many times before, that doesn't seem particularly controversial to you and to me. We see bumper stickers that say, Jesus is Lord. We see church signs that say, Jesus is Lord. But you have to understand that in the first century Roman Empire, to say Jesus was Lord meant that Caesar was not. And that was rebellion against the empire, and it was punishable by death. And what does Herod want to do? He wants to ingratiate himself to Rome. So if there's somebody out there preaching that there is another king, another sovereign besides Caesar, he knows he's going to go up several notches in the estimation of the emperor if he can deal with that problem. And so that is why Peter is arrested. And he's thrown into jail. But we are told that ultimately he is delivered. We have this dramatic account of Peter's Deliverance in Acts chapter 12, verses 6 through 11. Let's read them again. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. He was bound with two chains, and sentries were before the door, guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. Of course, in those days, men wore long tunics the whole way down to the floor. And you'll hear the expression, gird up your loins like a man. Uh, in order to walk, in order to run, you had to hike up your skirt, so to speak. And you tied a belt around your waist. And that's what the angel says to him. He says, get up, gird up your loins, wrap your cloak around you, and follow me. Now, the first thing that I want you to notice 
is the attitude of the apostles at this point. Peter has been thrown into jail. He knows that James has already been executed. He knows that the only reason he's still alive is because it had been the Passover. But he knows the next day he's going to be brought out. He realized that the death of James had pleased the people, so he knows full well what is going to happen to him. What's going to happen to him tomorrow? He's going to be taken care of. He's going to be put to death. There's no doubt in his mind whatsoever. If you knew that was the case, if you had just eaten your last meal and you know that the next day you are going to be put to death and in the most painful, humiliating way possible, what would you be doing on the night before? Well, he's sleeping. How many of you would be able to sleep under those circumstances? That's the first thing I want you to notice about the apostles. There's no doubt about the fact that Herod is intent on getting rid of him. He's been testing the wind, as I said. He's already put James to death. Peter knows what's about to happen to him, and yet Peter is sleeping. Now, this is a remarkable transformation from the Peter that we encounter in the Gospels, isn't it? The same Peter who denied Jesus three times in order to save his own skin. Now Peter is sleeping like a baby on the night before his own apparent crucifixion. That's the first thing I want you to notice. Peter is doing what he is sleeping. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changed everything in the lives of these men. They are transformed from being a fearful, cowering group of men who will do anything to save their own skins into a courageous group of men who are willing to risk their skins for the sake of him who died for them. And we see this over and over again in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 5, we're told when they were first arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin, they were beaten. And when they went forth from being beaten, what did they do? They rejoiced that they were what? Counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. In Acts chapter 16, we're not there yet, but in Acts chapter 16, we have the account of the Apostle Paul and his traveling companion, Silas. And they are thrown into prison in Philippi. And the charge that was brought against them was that they were advocating customs that were not lawful for Romans to practice. Another charge that could have ended in their death. And we're told on the night before their supposed execution, they were singing hymns. Singing hymns to God, singing praise to God. Not even asking for deliverance, but singing praise to God. Why were they doing this? I think the answer is probably found in James chapter 12. If you have your Bibles with you, just keep your finger there in Acts and turn to James for just a moment. This is an important lesson for you and for me. When we're going through difficult times, sometimes we feel as though we're just up against it. We're in James chapter 1. If I said 12, I don't know why I said that, but it's James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Here's what the Apostle James says. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Some translations put endurance. The apostles knew 
that God could deliver them. There was no guarantee that he was going to, but he could. And even if he didn't, what he was doing was working in their lives to transform them ever more into the image of Christ. You know, that's really what God wants to do in your life and mine. God's real goal in your life is not to make you happy. If you become a Christian in the hope that you are going to be happiness, I've got a revelation for you. God is not concerned about your happiness. You may be concerned about your happiness, but God is not concerned about your happiness. God is concerned about your holiness. God is in the process of transforming us evermore into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. That is what it means to be saved. It means to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And the enduring sufferings that we go through, all of these privations and difficulties that we go, are the process by which God hones us and shapes us into the image of His Son. I always like to describe it like playing with Play-Doh. You ever see a child play with Play-Doh? And he'll take one of those little cookie-cutter images, whether it's a dinosaur or a tree or whatever it is, and he presses it down into the Play-Doh. And then he lifts it up, and what do you have? You have that perfect imprint, except for all that excess stuff around the edges. You do the same thing when you make cookies. And what do you do with that excess stuff? Well, you do eat it, yeah. I hope you don't eat the Play-Doh. But, but you do what with the excess stuff? You peel it away. Well, the Scripture says when we become Christians, what God does is He implants His image on us. When God looks at us, He no longer sees us in our brokenness, our fallenness, our sin. He looks on us, and what does He see? He sees the righteousness of His very own Son. But here's the key. There's still a lot of excess stuff around the edges. And what God wants to do is peel off all of that excess stuff so that it's their perfect image of His Son. And how does he peel off all of that excess stuff around the edges? Sometimes by suffering. You learn more from your mistakes, don't you? Sometimes than you do by your victories. And oftentimes, the people who have been the greatest followers of Jesus Christ have been those who have suffered the most because through that process of suffering, like Jesus Christ, they have been transformed ever more into his image. And that's what the apostles knew was happening with them. And by this point in their lives, they were not interested in just saving themselves. They were not interested in their own happiness. What they really wanted was to be like Christ, to be Christ-like. How did the last chapter end? That they were called Christians first at Antioch. And what did we say the word Christian meant? Little Christ, Christ wants. So the thing to notice here is the attitude of the apostles. They're in very difficult situations. Peter is in, in the situation where he's probably going to be executed, and yet he's not fearful. He trusts that by his life or by his death, Jesus Christ is going to be glorified. Well, the good news for Peter, and I suppose for us, is that he was ultimately rescued. He was prepared if he wasn't. You'll notice that when Jesus prayed for deliverance in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, if this cup can pass, let it pass. Did the cup pass? No. And that's why he went on to say, but nevertheless, what? 
not my will, but thy will be done. That's Peter's attitude. I'd like to be rescued, Lord, but if you don't rescue me, I know that you are the same God who raised your son, Jesus Christ, from the dead, and if it's your will, you can raise me from the dead. So, Lord, I'm going to sleep. And that's what he did. And that was the attitude. Absolute trust in the delivering power of God. Well, what we find is that Peter ultimately was rescued. An angel appears in the middle of the night, uh, taps him on the side, immediately his chains fell off, and the gates to the prison fly open. It reminds me of that great hymn by Charles Wesley, uh, And Can It Be, where Wesley says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That's what happened to Peter, although it wasn't just a spiritual deliverance, it was a physical deliverance. A couple of things I want you to notice about Peter's deliverance. First thing is this, the deliverance came when? It came at the last moment. God is the author of surprise endings. You know, oftentimes when we pray for something, we want God to give it to us and give it to us right now. But remember what James said. It is that suffering that produces endurance. It produces endurance, steadfastness. There may be times when you are praying for deliverance from something, but understand God is going to do it in His time, not in your time. And God's timing is always perfect. That's one of the reasons why when we pray, we should always pray that we are in step with the Spirit, not running ahead and not lagging behind, but in perfect step with the Holy Spirit. Well, that was the case with Peter. God did deliver him, but it came at the very last minute. You know, those are the best kind of deliverances, aren't they? How many Clemson fans out there? Isn't that how God delivered you this year? At the very last minute. At the last second. And those are the best kinds of deliverances, aren't they? Because they really show who's in power, who's in control. Deliverance at the last moment. Now, you have to balance out Peter's deliverance with the experience of James. We can't always assume that just because we are Christians, God is going to deliver us from peril or from difficulty or from suffering or from pain or from illness or from disease or even from death. It's interesting to note he did deliver Peter, but he did not deliver James. He did not even deliver his son Jesus Christ from the suffering of the cross, in spite of the fact that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane asked for it. If this cup can pass, let it pass. Now, Jesus was resigned to whatever the Father's will was, and that's why he said, but not my will, but yours be done. And in the end, what was the Lord's will? Not that he be delivered, but that he die for you and for me. Ultimately, Christ was vindicated, but he did not escape the suffering of the cross. And so you always have to balance this out. Peter knew that God could deliver him, but he knew that God might not. And we have to remember that in our prayers. When we're going through difficult times, God can deliver us, but there is no guarantee that he will. Trusting God means trusting that whatever he wills for our life, 
is ultimately for our benefit and for the benefit of others. And the greatest benefit of all is not just for us or for others, it's for what? It's for the glory of His name. You and I were created for the glory of His name. Third thing to note about Peter's deliverance, and I've already alluded to this, is the fact that it illustrates spiritual deliverance. The way that he delivered Peter is the way that God delivers us. Wesley got it right. We are all fast bound, my friends. Wesley said we are fast bound in sin and nature's night. We are prisoners to sin and to death. And what God has done is he has come in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and he has delivered us from this. Fourth thing to notice about Peter's deliverance is that this deliverance came as a direct result of prayer, and it came as the direct result of the church's prayer. Peter was sleeping, but what was the church doing? The church was earnestly praying. The church was earnestly praying. And so I want to show you four points about prayer that we find in Acts chapter 12, and then we'll move on to Acts chapter 13. Four things about prayer in Acts chapter 12. The first thing we read is that it was prayer, and it was prayer to God. These people were not pleading uh, to the king. They were pleading, and they were praying to God. Let me tell you, not all prayer is offered up to God. Oftentimes when we pray, truth be known, especially when we're praying publicly, the prayers are often for the people who are listening. There was a famous um, July 4th celebration in Boston back in the 19th century, and they asked one of the famous preachers there in the city of Boston to give the invocation as they started these Independence Day celebrations. And you know how the newspaper reported it the next day? They said, Reverend so-and-so delivered or gave an invocation, the finest prayer ever offered to a Boston audience. That's how the newspaper reported it. It was the finest prayer ever offered to a Boston audience. We need to recognize that not all prayer is offered to God. Uh, take a look at um, Acts or Matthew chapter 6 for just a moment. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. For truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not pray like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. For truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray instead like this. And then we get the example of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
First thing to note about their prayer is that it is not a prayer that is intended to impress anybody but God. It is a prayer to God. Second thing to note is that it is corporate prayer. It is common prayer for a common purpose. The prayer of the righteous availeth much. Third thing to note, it is an earnest prayer. It is a genuine prayer. It is a prayer from the heart. It is sincere. It is a specific prayer. Verse 5 tells us they were praying for deliverance. And the final thing was this. It was not a doubting prayer. They trusted that God was already at work in the life of Peter. Turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 17. I want to show you something. The transformation that has taken place in the lives of these disciples. Matthew chapter 17 tells the story of the transfiguration. If you were in church here at St. Philip some weeks ago, uh, Andrew O'Dell preached on the transfiguration. He told the story of Jesus taking Peter, James, and John up on that mountain where he was transfigured before their eyes. They saw the Lord shining in resplendent glory. They saw Moses and they saw Elijah, the great representatives of the law and the prophets. But there is a story that took place after the transfiguration. And that wasn't part of the text, but it's very important. Look at Acts chapter 17, verses 14 and following. Matthew, excuse me, chapter 17, verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. So here's the scene. Jesus has taken James and John and Peter and he's gone up on the mountains where he has this transfiguring experience. The other disciples are where? At the bottom of the mountain. And while Jesus is up there, shining in resplendent glory and revealing himself to Peter, James, and John, that sort of inner circle in the twelve, the other disciples are down at the bottom and a man brings to them his son who's got this problem. Some texts say that he was possessed of a demon. This text says that he had epilepsy. Whatever it was, he had some sort of physical or spiritual malady. And what they did know was that Jesus was a man who had delivered people. Jesus wasn't available, but there are his disciples. And so naturally you would assume that the disciples would be able to do something for him, but they can't. And so when Jesus comes down the mountain, the man comes up to Jesus and he says, my son has got this problem. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. And what does Jesus say in verse 17? O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. And the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of what? Your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, this text says little faith. Other translations say because of your lack of faith. And I think that's probably a better translation. Why? Because Jesus goes on to talk about the faith the size of a mustard seed, which can move mountains. How big is a mustard seed? It's a small seed. 
Which means Jesus wasn't talking about the amount of faith. He was talking about what? Where they placed their faith. Where they placed their faith. That's the key. It's not the amount of faith that you have. It's where you are placing your faith. And somebody said, you can have a whole lot of faith in thin ice and try walking to the other side of the lake and you're still going to be swimming. You can have a little bit of faith in thick ice and walk to the other side. Some years ago when I was interviewing a candidate for ministry, I went out to Wisconsin to show to theological seminary and uh, we were taking this candidate out for dinner, he and his wife, to see if they might be a, a fit for us in my parish where I was serving in Beaufort. And we went out to dinner and I said, you pick the restaurant. So he picked this very fine restaurant. We went out. It was February in Wisconsin. And we went out and uh, this restaurant was so popular there were cars parked everywhere. I didn't even know where we were going to find a parking space. But they had people out there directing you. And uh, I rolled down my window and I said, where should we park? And the man said, just go on out there and park on the lake. I said, park on the what? He said, you just, just drive out there and, and park on the lake. I said, are you kidding me? And he goes, no, 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 no. I you know, I'd never done that before. I said, um, do you ever lose cars on the lake? And he goes, yeah, it happens rarely. He said, but you're fine this time of the year. Don't worry about it. And I rolled up the window and I paused there for a moment. And I thought, ah, well, it's a rental car. What the heck? So we, we drove out there and we, we, we parked on the lake. And the whole way through dinner, I'm thinking, is it going to be there when I get back out? And, Sure enough, the car was out there. All you, I didn't have much faith, folks. I've got to be honest with you. I did not have much faith. But what little faith I had, I was willing to place in thick ice, and it made all the difference. That's what Jesus was saying to his disciples. And that's what made the difference for the church. These people may not have had a whole lot of faith, but they did have faith in a great God. A little bit of faith. And what little faith they had, they invested in God. And that's what made all the difference. They had such faith in him that whether he delivered Peter or not, they were okay with it. And yet what's so funny is that when Peter was delivered, did any of them believe it? Rhoda was so surprised when Peter showed up at the gate that instead of letting him in, she just left him standing there at the gate and ran back and told everybody. And they all said, you're crazy. But it turns out, they weren't. Where are you placing your faith today? You know, Peter was in a difficult bind. And sooner or later, we're all going to be in a difficult bind. Many of you have heard me say before, we're all in one of three places. I think about Jesus and that great storm on the Sea of Galilee and how Jesus came and he calmed the waves. Now, Jesus was asleep in the stern, and the disciples came and said, Do you not care that we perish? And Jesus got up and we're told he rebuked the wind and the waves. You always see this depicted in artwork as though Jesus is sort of up there. Oh, just peace be still. It says he rebuked it. They woke him from a nap. And he got up, and he rebuked the wind and the waves. Be quiet, settle down. And the waves settled down. And the disciples realized who he really was. It wasn't the only time they'd ever been in trouble on the lake. On another occasion, we're told that Jesus came walking on the waves to deliver them because the wind was against them. That just goes to show you that every single one of us is in one of three places, folks. 
You don't like to think about it this way, but it's true. We are all, every single one of us, going into a storm, in a storm, or you've just come out of a storm. But that's where we all are in our lives. Why? Because in this life, Jesus says, you will have tribulation. He doesn't say, in this life, you may have tribulation. It's likely you're going to have tribulation. He says, you will. Sooner or later, we're all going to have tribulation. And the question is, when tribulation strikes, where are we going to place our trust? Are we going to take our little faith and place it in a great God? Because that's what makes all the difference. And it's ultimately what made all the difference for Peter. And so he was delivered. And that brings us then to Acts chapter 13. So if you will, turn to Acts chapter 13. It looks like we're almost out of time. There won't be any time to go into this. Acts chapter 13 is an important section in the book of Acts. Uh, it's a turning point. It's really the beginning of the missionary era. But before we do, let's just finish out this section. I've got a couple more things I suppose I could say about this. First thing I want you to notice is that Peter is delivered. Now, it looked like Peter was coming to the end of his time. He's delivered. But what happened to Herod? Well, Herod, the section ends with Herod dying. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration. This account of the death of King Herod matches up perfectly with one other contemporary account that we know of the death of Herod. There was a famous first century historian by the name of Flavius Josephus. He was a sometime Roman soldier and sometimes Jewish rebel. Uh, he also tested the wind and went whichever way things seemed to be going. But he was also a first-rate historian. And he records the death of King Herod. Peter is delivered, but what happens to Herod? This is very important to Luke. Herod loses his life. And he loses it in a very painful and ignominious way. We don't know exactly what happened to him. We're told that he came out on one of these occasions. It was because he was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. I mentioned that he ruled over this entire section of ancient Palestine, the, the former kingdom of his grandfather. Just north of there was a kingdom known as Phoenicia, and its two leading cities were ancient cities, Tyre and Sidon. These were trade cities with Herod's kingdom. They supplied him with certain things, he supplied certain things with them. He had become so powerful and influential by this point that the people of Tyre and Sidon were fearful of him. And they realized that they had upset him. And so we're told here in Acts chapter 12 that they decided to make peace with him by honoring him with a great banquet. And the story goes, according to Josephus, that on this occasion, Herod came out dressed in royal robes, different robes than he had ever worn before. Um, in fact, Josephus describes them in minute detail. They were made of pure silver. And the story goes that when he came out, the sun was reflecting off of his royal robes, and he looked glorious. And then we're told he stood up and he gave this oration. And it was such an eloquent oration that the people 
began to shout, this is not the voice of a man. This man is, in fact, a god. And according to Josephus, what happened at that point was that all of a sudden, the king doubled over in pain. And he was taken out of the arena where this took place, and he lingered for five days before he died. Now, that matches up perfectly with what Luke tells us here. What exactly happened to King Herod? We don't know. Some people have suggested that he was suffering from a burst ulcer or that it was a burst appendix and he suffered from peritonitis and then he, he died. We don't know. But he died an ignominious death. And for Luke, that is very significant because Luke doesn't think that this is any accident. Luke thinks that this was a man who was persecuting the church, who was claiming to be a god when Peter had proclaimed there was only one god and the result was that he was struck down. It reminds me of the death of another great king. If you go back to the Old Testament, there is the story in the book of Daniel. So if you have your Bibles with you, go to Daniel for just a moment. Ezekiel Daniel, chapter 4, verses 1 and following. This is the story of King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, one of the great empires of the ancient world. And this is what we see about King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar was at ease in his house, prospering in his palace. And he said, I saw a dream that made me afraid. Um, what happened was King Nebuchadnezzar was a great king. Uh, he had uh, built a great empire, and he had a dream in which he saw himself. And he was walking along his palace, and he was looking at all of the great hanging gardens and so forth, and he began to praise himself. He began to praise himself for all that he had accomplished. And the result of praising himself, instead of giving glory to God, was that he was struck down. Look at verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. And at the end of his days, Nebuchadnezzar lifted up his eyes to heaven and his reason returned to him. And he said, I bless the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Luke is telling us that the church gave glory to God and God delivered them. This king who seemed so powerful, who had all of this pomp, all of this power, took the praise upon himself, and God humbled him. 
And that's exactly what had happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And that is how the section ends. It ends with the death of Herod, with Peter's release, and with these words, but the word of God increased and multiplied. And when we come back next week, we come to one of the most exciting sections in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13, the church that changes the world. And what I want us to take a look at next week is what kind of a church changes the world. If St. Philip's, or if you're from St. Michael's, or wherever you're from, if you want to be a part of a church that changes the world, what kind of a church changes the world? It's going to face opposition, but what kind of a church changes the world? Well, Acts chapter 13 tells us what kind of a church changes the world, and it tells us in very specific detail. So we'll take a look at that next week. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the example of the Apostle Peter and for the example of your church. Persecution does come, Lord, into our lives. There are always those who are out there testing the wind, and when they realize that the wind is against the church, they get on board, and persecution can erupt at any time. But Lord, we know that we can place what little faith we have in a great God, and it is not the amount, but where we place that faith that makes all the difference. The early church placed its faith in you, and you delivered them over and over again. Grant that in our own difficult times that we may trust you, that whatever you are doing in our lives, it is for our good, for the benefit of your whole people, and for the glory of your name. So give us faith, Lord, even faith the size of a mustard seed, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, thank you.